Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sex. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an 80-20-20 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP-40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some great options like noise-cancelling headphones for travel, some really cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. Hirakrishnas are often seen as joyous, harmless people, dancing their way through the streets, chanting to bells in their colourful robes. But in one particular Australian offshoot, a young woman named Lena told me about her not-so-harmless experiences. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also includes references to physical and sexual assault of minors. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening too. I also need to add that the views and opinions expressed in this episode include those personal to a young woman named Lena, who shared her experiences with me. Our conversation was candid and detailed, and I have no reason to believe that she would be telling anything other than the truth. But her views are her own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the makers of this podcast. Mwilumba is located in the Northern Rivers area of New South Wales, Australia, a region whose name you may remember from episode two of this season about universal medicine. Situated on the Tweed River, the town lies in the shadow of Wollumbun, a mountain British colonisers called Mount Warning that is a sacred Indigenous place to its traditional custodians, the Bundjalung people. 
with volcanic origins creating rich soil and generally high rainfall. It's a fertile and beautiful part of the state. Mwilimba is also the home of various alternative lifestyle seekers, including many practicing Hirakrishnas. The International Society for Krishna Consciousness, or ISKCON, was set up in 1966 by a middle-class Indian man named Abhay Charanaravinda. Krishna consciousness is a transcendental state of enlightenment whereby a devotee is able to keep Krishna at the centre of their thoughts at all times, which means they are no longer under the sway of Maya, who is constantly working to keep them in the unenlightened material world. Abhay's aim was to take the message of Krishna consciousness to Western society, and in order to do so, he left his wife and children in Calcutta and boarded a freight ship for the USA. He took on the name Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada and became known as Prabhupada to his disciples. His message gained some traction in the counterculture climate of the 60s, though the main thing it may have had in common with most hippies was probably a vegetarian diet. According to the Krishna.com website, since its development, more than 500 temples, centres, communities, schools and restaurants have been established, and there are now around a quarter of a million devotees of ISKCON. They became known as Hirakrishnas due to their constant chanting of the Hirakrishna mantra in public and private. You may be familiar with the chant, which goes, Hirakrishna, Hirakrishna, Krishna, Krishna, Hara, 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 Rama, Hara, Rama, 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 Hara, Hara and it is often chanted whilst dancing and playing percussive instruments. Central to the Hare Krishna movement's practices is a surrender of sensory gratification, which extends to any foods that are seen as exciting or too flavourful, music outside of religious chanting and percussion, reading outside of prescribed teachings about Krishna from the gurus, and much cultural output from the so-called material world. Some of the more controversial teachings of Prabhupada include the inferiority of women, who are to be looked after by men, that men and women can never really be friends, that science is to be distrusted, and that homosexuality is degraded and abominable. As unacceptable as these ideas should be, when it comes to religion we all know they're not uncommon, and modern ISKCON followers say that at least on the gender equality issue things have changed, though some ex-members and onlookers remain dubious. Srila Narayana Maharaja was born on the 16th of February 1921 in Tewarapur, India. He claimed to be very athletic in school and grew up to become a police officer. He married and had children, then in 1947 he heard Srila Narottam Brahmakari preach and decided to leave his family to join Brahmakari's mission. In 1948 he met Prabhupada. Srila Narayana Maharaja became a friend of Prabhupada, though not one of his disciples. When Prabhupada passed away in 1977, Narayana claimed that Prabhupada had asked him from his deathbed to continue his legacy. Narayana then formed his own sect called Giriraja Gavadan Gaudiamat. It had distinct ideologies and separate temples, and while some of Prabhupada's disciples followed Narayana, there have been rivalries between his sect and ISKCON ever since. Two of the four Australian centres for Narayana's offshoot group were set up in Mawilamba, and one of those was known to residents as the Garden Ashram. It's here that a former member believes that the practices were taken to the extreme.
I spoke to a former resident of the Garden Ashram who asked to be referred to as Lena. Lena's family had first started getting involved with the Hare Krishna belief system when she was five years old, and she told me the following about their community. The Garden Ashram was located just outside of the town of Mwilumba, on a large block of land that backed onto a national park. There was no road access, as it was over a river that only had a footbridge fashioned from a log. Different methods were used to access the property, depending on the water level. When it was low, devotees would wade across or drive their cars through the water or balance on the log bridge. When it flooded or the water level was high, people would canoe or travel in boats. They also fashioned a barge made out of 44-gallon drums that was pulled along on a pulley system, which is how Narayana Maharaja accessed the property when he visited during a flood. The property had one legal dwelling, a two-bedroom house with mains electricity, a toilet and a phone line. In spite of the limited facilities, there were generally around 15 to 20 people living on the property at any one time. They would camp or stay in caravans, or they would construct DIY dwellings out of shipping containers and build small huts in the forest. I was four when my parents started getting into it. So they were quite into alternate spirituality and that kind of thing beforehand. So... My mum was like a white witch and was interested in goddess worship and dad had his own little group thing with his sister around the time I was born. So they were already interested in that kind of thing. And um, they moved to the area with my dad's sister and then I think they just were like trying out different things and they really liked the Hare Krishnas. So I think that they just got involved through like meeting a bunch of people in the town. I can see like what drew them to the group because I think they were like looking for a sense of community and it came with an inbuilt friend group and events to go to every week and everyone is considered like a brother or a sister and um, you get like a sense of meaning and purpose from it. You have purposes in life, so you're there to like get good karma and be a good devotee and like spread the word and everything like that. There's also like a lot of fun cultural elements. I know there's like singing and dancing and there's festivals every couple of weeks. Plus there's this whole like Hindu mythology that you can go into where they do like plays about it and songs and there's Indian dancing, which we learned there as well. Lena's mother became very invested in the belief system, but her father was less sure. My parents actually broke up because the guru told her to break up with my dad. This was when I was around six, six or seven. Yeah, so my dad had started eating meat. He said it was like for his health. And my mom was like really not happy with that. Uh, So she went to India and she talked to the guru and she was saying like, oh, my husband, the term that she used, she said, my husband is deviating philosophically. And... The guru was like, can you live without him? And she was like, yeah. And then she was like, yeah, then you should break up. And then she came back and just broke up with him. Lena's mother remarried around a year later, and her stepfather was the brother of the man who owned the land where the garden ashram was situated. So the family moved onto the property. The brother of Lena's stepfather sounded like quite a character himself. He had pulled out all his teeth. He had no teeth because he believed the apocalypse was coming and they wouldn't be dentists in the apocalypse. So he had 
like dentures and he would often just say some like crazy sounding things like he was into chemtrails and that type of thing he also had a wife who didn't like him at all but they were still married I think she just like didn't want to leave him but he was very like I think also scary and like dominating to her yeah so he was like a, a strange scary guy who just decided to like build this ashram and everyone came and lived there for years. Lena's family initially lived in the main house and then her mother, stepfather and the four children moved into a three by four metre shed that her stepfather had built in the middle of the forest. They would eat, sleep, pray and study in the same tiny space. The shed had no telephone or power and the family all used an outside compost toilet. For an adult devotee, a typical day would start at 4am with bathing, chanting mantras, dressing and applying tilak, which is a religious mark usually on the forehead, and attending Mangala Aarti, a worship session, all before sunrise. After this would be a vegetarian breakfast, then chores between breakfast and lunch while chanting rounds. A round consists of reciting the Hare Krishna mantra 108 times, and a count is kept by touching beads on a string made out of wood from the tulsi plant and known as japa beads. Narayana once told an interviewer that he sometimes chanted the mantra 200,000 times a day, which could take more than 12 continuous hours. He said his guru would chant 300,000 times and only slept 24 minutes a day. Chores might be around the house or even work in a regular job, but would most often be volunteering at the temple. Temple service could be anything from sweeping floors, gardening and chopping vegetables, to going out and selling books and preaching to recruit new members. Children would sometimes be homeschooled, with a major focus on studying scripture and serving Krishna, or like Lena and her siblings, they would attend the local ISKCON school. Another arti, a ritual offering light, usually in the form of flame, to the deities, would be performed. Then bhajan, devotional song to bless the food, before a lunch of a simple rice and vegetable dish. After lunch, an hour or two of sleep or private study was allowed, before getting ready for evening services by bathing again, reapplying the tilak, and getting dressed in full robes. Evening services involved further bhajans, arti, reading of scripture, and dinner. On an ordinary night, evening services would last two to three hours, but on special occasions they could go until after midnight. After helping to clean up, devotees would bathe for the third time, do some more private reading, or finish up their 16 daily rounds, and go to sleep just after sunset. Others from outside the ashram would sometimes join in services as well. There were programs, is what they called it, each week, where everyone in the community would come together on like Friday night usually and sing and that type of thing, and there would be around like 30 to 40 to 50 people more people would come on holidays on special occasions but there would be around 30 people that would come regularly to the events. All devotees were given Hare Krishna names that they were known by within the community. I asked Lena about her impression of the other people in the group and whether she felt they had anything in common with each other. I think a lot of them were quite naive people they would often be taken in by pyramid schemes. So among the community, there are a bunch of pyramid schemes where everyone would be trying to like sell things to each other. 
So we're always trying to get to the next level to be like gold level and be able to start making money from it. But I think that a lot of people were also into conspiracy theories. So they would believe in, they would be talking about things like chemtrails and how fluoride was a mind control agent of the state, like that type of thing. Yeah, so I feel like those types of people that are already like into some kind of like, I guess, alternative thoughts and groups, it was an easy step to go on from there to believing in um, all the things that Hare Krishna was doing. Also, um, there were a lot of uni dropouts and like young people that were traveling that would get caught up in it. The groups would use whooping, which is, I think, workers on organic farms. So they would often get some people in to do like gardening and stuff, but then they'd slowly get involved with the groups. Lena told me about some more aspects of the belief system. Krishna is what they call the supreme personality of Godhead and he's the incarnation of Vishnu who is a Hindu god but they just think that Krishna is the best incarnation of him and the goal of existence is to go back to the spiritual world with Krishna. Uh, They believe that reincarnation exists and karma dictates what life you'll have in the next life. So if you're a really good person, maybe you'll get to be another good person. But if you're bad, you might get reincarnated as like a dog or a worm. Um, and they think that when you die, whatever you're thinking about dictates what you'll be in your next life. So because you could die at any time, you should always be thinking of Krishna so then you'll get a better reincarnation. And they do think that anything that isn't their specific branch of Hare Krishna, Vaishnavism, is pointless. So among the Hare Krishna groups, there's a lot of weird politics and infighting and people are accusing other people of being spies for the other Hare Krishnas all the time. It's very dramatic and silly. I asked Lena what people in the ashram would do for money. Well, not many of them worked. It's kind of a mystery to me. Um, I know that a lot of people were on Centrelink. I know my mother pretty much never worked. She had four kids, though, so I think that she was getting quite a lot of money from Centrelink. I know that there were also people who, like, faked disabilities and that type of thing. And about her own money? When I was a kid, I got pocket money. I got around $2 a week that would go straight into my bank account. And I saved up all that money over a year or two. It was a few hundred dollars and I just handed it directly to the guru. I did this multiple times and he would just take it and hand it to his assistant and then I don't know where it went. I don't know what happened to it. Lena had told me about family trips to India, and I wondered how they were able to afford to go. Yeah, I went five times. So I think that part of it is that they would kind of neglect children and um, not spend as much money on them as they should to be able to save to go to India, that type of thing. They also did sell books on the street sometimes. 
but I don't think that's going to make enough of an income to travel to India once a year with, you know, three kids. Although he was usually a distant figure of worship, Lena did find herself in Srila Narayana Maharaja's presence on a few occasions. So I was a kid the whole time I was with the Hare Krishnas. So that was aged like 5 to 13. But I definitely did see him. I got initiated into the group when I was five. And then I went to India a bunch of times. So whenever we went to India, we would see him. He would be giving like lectures that we would go listen to. He also came to Australia. So whenever he came, we would go to the festivals that were there. The Hare Krishnas would just rent out the local showgrounds. And then for like a week, that would be the festival. He also did come to the ashram one time. It was flooding at the time. And there was no road access to the temple. So they built like a barge and he went across on the barge to visit. I asked Lena if she had any thoughts about what it was about Narayana that gave him such sway over his followers' lives. Well, I think that the gurus are generally like old Indian men and they capitalise on like the Western interests that began in the 60s. So I think that because uh, Westerners tend to like fetishize Eastern religions and like mysticism, I think they were able to draw people in through that. They also did create a cult of personality. So they would use ties to the spiritual world to legitimize their power. So there was this thing that they, the gurus, they exist both on the material plane as old Indian men, but in the spiritual world at the same time, there are these young cowherd girls called gopis, and they hang out with Krishna. They talk to him and dance with him. So they have transcendental knowledge and complete authority over everything. But I would say if the guru was so far away that it was often down to leaders within the communities to dictate what went on and how they would interpret what the guru said. So I think that that was a bit of a power trip for them, middle-aged men who got to have women doing their housework and, you know, they're the head of the house. They're like the closest ones to God, that type of thing. So I would say that there's this sense of awe and adoration that is perpetuated by the devotees to each other all the time. So there are like songs written about their lives and things they've done. Uh, There are photos of them that we worshipped with incense and like made garlands for and we would sing to them. And we would, even when the guru wasn't there, we'd be listening to lectures of them and talking about them. And when we got to see them in person, that was like an amazing thing. I remember being a kid and there was this thing that getting the dust from underneath their feet was like an amazing thing to do. And I remember I got like a pinch of dust from underneath their feet. And I was so happy because my mother had told me how amazing that was. Also like leftover food. I remember being in India and a devotee had like a piece of ginger that he'd chewed on. And 
she was like holding it and like passing out little bits to everyone. And if you got got a piece of the food that he'd choose, that was like bragging rights. And water from his feet was also like that as well. So if you got some water, it was like, oh, such good karma. There was like a hierarchical system of leadership. So pretty much there was the guru. And then underneath that, there were sannyasis who were like, I guess you could describe them as like apprentice gurus. So they were like under him, but they were still, they would wear the same saffron cloths and they would tour around and spread the word, I guess. And then under that, there were married men who wore white. And then I guess it was unmarried men and then women and then children. Lena later told me that there was a culture that encouraged and enabled middle-aged men around 45 to 60 years old to go to the Philippines and bring back 18 to 25-year-old women to be their wives. She says that some even left wives that were their own age to do this, and there would be talk about getting the young women at age 18 before they're ruined. I hadn't realised that it was usual for a Hare Krishna ashram to be structured in such a patriarchal way, and I understand that some groups have moved away from this, but the garden ashram hadn't done so while Lena was living there. Super patriarchal, yes. So the term that women were to refer to men as is Prabhu, which translates to master. And women women that were like the same age were Didi, which means sister. So it's like a super clear double standard that um, just shows the dynamic, I think. I asked Lena what she thought was different about the Hare Krishnas from other religious organisations. Well, I think that some things that are different is that they managed to avoid a lot of the scrutiny that other dangerous groups attract by being by seeming just like fun and harmless and silly. So they're known for like free food and handing out books in the street and dancing and that type of thing. Um, and the like TV shows make fun of them as well. So they were like on The Simpsons and I think they were also in the film Airplane. I think culturally it's seen as okay to make fun of them. In spite of this impression, Lena told me that there was still a lot in the teachings that was very fear-based. There's actually these really horrific depictions of hell that we got taught as children. There's descriptions of Viviana Dudas, who are the devil's minions, whipping people for hours as they walk down like a really long, hot, sandy road. Or there are like specific punishments for specific actions. So they don't drink alcohol. So like the punishment for intoxication was having molten hot gold poured down your throat. Or adultery. (laughs) Adultery was like having to embrace a molten hot statue of like a sexy woman or whatever. So it was like really specific fear-based compliance. Like if you don't do this, this is what's coming. And here are like paintings of it and graphic descriptions. 
I asked Lena if she thought that there was anything dangerous about the way that the group she was personally involved with operated. One of the things I was going to say is about isolationism, like physical isolation, but there was also like social isolation. So members were told to put Krishna and Gurudev above everything first. And reality is considered the material world, which you're not meant to have too many attachments to. So like family and romantic relationships, you weren't meant to get too engaged with that. Also like access to TV shows, mainstream music, movies, they were all really censored. And the elders were opposed to children going to Kami schools. Kami is like the term they use to refer to anything that isn't Hare Krishna. So it's like the outside world. I would say that there was a lot of like life control and brainwashing involved. So the diet was very restricted and every item of food was placed into a mode and then that dictated if it was acceptable to eat. So there were these three modes of food that were called goodness, passion and ignorance and you could only eat food from the mode of goodness. So some foods that were restricted and put into the modes of passion and ignorance were things like eggs, lentils, carrot, onion, garlic, mushrooms, that type of thing. But a lot of the food was very like high carb, low protein, very like sugary and salty. And I think that when you're not getting enough nutrition, it makes you very tired and less likely to have the energy to do anything outside of the temple. So there was also another type of thing where suffering and pain were sort of as acceptable and like good things because they would be a way to work off your bad karma. So I remember my little sister one time, she was running on the cement road and it was like hard and she was hurting her feet. And I was like, uh, you can put on shoes, you know, if you want to. And she was saying, no, I need to feel little bits of pain to work off my bad karma so that I don't have something bad happen to me in the future. And that was definitely like an idea that was uh, told to us as kids. I would say that it's worrying that they don't believe in modern science. They're very strongly like anti-vaxxer thing. My mom never gave any of us vaccinations and took us overseas to India all the time. So we all got sick every time we went to India. And when we did get sick, she didn't believe in like Western medicine. So we didn't have access when we did get sick to things like antibiotics. One time I remember I got really sick. I had a chest infection, vertigo. I was throwing up and hallucinating. And she took me to this Ayurvedic doctor who just gave me some herbs and some Ayurvedic jam. But then I didn't get better. And for like a week, I was saying, can you take me to a doctor? You really need to take me to a doctor. And so after a week, she finally took me there and I got the antibiotics I need and I recovered really quickly. Lena was around 10 or 11 years old when this happened. On the same trip, her baby sister got really sick with a fever. Her body went limp, her eyes glazed over, and she wasn't responding to stimulation. She came through it eventually, but Lena remembers being very scared at the time. 
I remember my parents telling me, it's okay to eat food that you drop on the floor because it's prashadam, that can't hurt you. Uh, same with holy water. We were told, like, it's okay to bathe in the Ganga and the Yamuna. But there's some of the most polluted bodies of water in India. And there's things like there's not any bacteria in them at all. And they actually brought back little bottles. And there was a ritual that involved drinking the water. Uh, my brother, he got... He probably had hepatitis, but my mom never took him to the doctor to check that that's what he had. But he had like a rash and he got jaundiced and had a fever, that type of thing. So we were all just getting sick a lot and not getting treated for it properly. Lena also found her education lacking in some areas. So they told us that the sun is closer to us than the moon, as a fact. And they also said that the earth is resting on the back of four elephants, and when they move, that's why earthquakes happen. I would also say the misogyny. There's a lot of that inbuilt into the system. So women are told to cover up their body at all times, even wear like a cloth in the shower while they wash. And women are often like held responsible for men's bad behavior. So I remember being like 12 or 13 and my mom started telling me to like cover up uh, in case like I tempt men, which I think is like, who's looking at a 13 year old? They should be able to wear whatever they want. I think there's also a lot of like shaming around menstruation. So there's a ritual that they do where they walk around uh, a Tulsi tree, which is a sacred tree. And it's a thing that everyone does except the women who are on their period. So all the women on their period have to just awkwardly stand to the side and everyone knows while they're like going around, everyone else is doing the ritual. You also, if you're on your period, you can't serve food to other people or touch men in case you contaminate them. Yeah. There was also some like weird fake empowering messages that I remember some of the women saying to each other, like, women, we are just like men, but with a womb. We are womb men. So our role is to have children and look after them and look after our husbands. And that's the greatest gift of all. And also, When I was around 13, my mum picked out a boy for me to marry. I found this shockingly young to be choosing a marriage partner and clarified with Lena that this was someone for her to marry in the future, which she said it was. But even so... I will say that very young marriages are common in the community. So this was more ISKCON, but... In the class I was in, there was a kid whose mom was 16 when she had him and another boy whose mother was 15 when she had him. The leader, the initial leader, um, his name is Prabhupada, he married his wife when she was 11. 
and they had their first kid when she was 14. And that was something that was kind of known and like not criticized at all. And it was kind of used as justification for like, girls should get married off very young. Yeah. And I think like drop out of school and not go to university. So like further education wasn't really prioritised at all. Lena didn't feel that it was her place to speak too deeply about ISKCON, as her main experience was within the confines of the Garden Ashram, but the larger group has had its share of controversies. In 1977, a judge confirmed the Hare Krishnas as a bona fide religion and rejected claims of brainwashing in the New York State Supreme Court. In 1987, West Virginian Hare Krishna community leader Curtin Ananda Swami Bhaktapada was expelled from the religion under grand jury investigations of alleged crimes from drug dealing to child molestation and even conspiracy to murder. Then in 2000, a US $400 million lawsuit alleged multiple instances of child sex abuse, torture and child slave labour enacted at ISKCON boarding schools in the US and India throughout the 1970s and 80s. It alleged that parents were told to send their children to the ashram boarding schools so that they could concentrate on devoting themselves to Krishna consciousness, and that the schools were underfunded and rife with abuse and neglect. Janavi Dasi was sent to an ISKCON school in Los Angeles at four years old, and was forced to sleep naked in a cold bathtub for a month because she wet the bed. She said it was, quote, easier for them to make me sleep in the tub than to change my sheets. She also said that when the school didn't take her to a doctor, she went into a diabetic coma for three weeks. Ben Bressack's guru in 1976 decided that he and other children should leave Dallas to attend school in India. Ben was molested just about every day, from the age of 8 to 12. Others were caned, beaten, denied medicine and locked in closets. It's believed that at least 1,000 children were abused at 11 American and two Indian ISKCON schools. Although it only came to legal proceedings in 2003, victims claimed that Prabhupada had known about the abuse when he was alive and in charge, and had conspired with other leaders to cover it up since 1972. The case was settled out of the American courts with the Hare Krishnas declaring bankruptcy in the USA in order to meet the compensation payouts. The Australian Hare Krishnas and others around the world were asked to contribute funds. To its credit, however, ISKCON had set up its own child protection office in 1997 and published an article about the abuses in its official journal in 1998. North American Director of Communications, Anatama Dasa, told the New York Times, quote, We need to get to the bottom of it and to the best of our ability do whatever we can to try to repair the damage to the kids and show them we do care as a religious society. Here's Lena again, speaking on her experiences within the non-ISKCON-affiliated Garden Ashram. The last dangerous thing I'd say is that, that there is kind of neglect of children and abuse that's quite common within the community. So because all the parents are so focused on their religion, the kids often were just like let to run around and do whatever they wanted. So we would just run off, uh, play in the trees and that type of thing. Had a really long leash, which I guess was fun at the time, but isn't that great 
Yeah, because we would like fight with sticks and I remember kids like jumping over the fire pit (laughs) and things like that. And there was also some abuse from my stepfather. So it was like he was pretty physically abusive to all my siblings. And I think that a lot of people knew about it and kind of just let it happen. I think that the beliefs of the group also give men permission to do whatever they like with their children and wives. So it's thought of as like, well, it's not really our business. He's the leader of the house. He can do what he wants. A Sydney Morning Herald report about a woman who died following an argument with her partner at a Hare Krishna retreat in Mwilumba in 2006 quoted Hare Krishna community spokesman Murari Katania as saying, We're not a violent people and we don't condone violence of any sort, even to animals. I asked Lena a little more about Kamis, the Hare Krishna name for those outside of the religion. They look at anyone who's not a Hare Krishna as a possible recruit. So if you're allowed outside friends, it's generally you're trying to convert them. And I'd say that Kami culture is feared. So any like pop music and that type of thing, there's a lot of fear around that. All the kids are just really desperate for like any outside information or media. As she reached her teenage years, Lena was able to attend a school that wasn't associated with the Hare Krishnas. She found herself having more questions about her way of life in the community than ever before. I didn't speak to my mum or my stepdad for around 10 years because they kicked me out of home when I was 13. One day they just said, yeah, you're not welcome here anymore. Um, my stepdad came up with this like analogy about apples. Like if you have a bag of apples and there's a rotten apple in it, you have to throw out the bad apples to save the rest of them. So because I was like challenging a lot of the things they were saying. And it was kind of just basic things. Like we didn't use cutlery to eat. We sat on a mat on the floor and ate with our hands and I just like wanted to use an knife and fork or like a spoon and they would be like no you can't use a fork because the rationalization was that prashadam which is what they call food that's been offered to Krishna that's like an embodiment of God and if you use a fork it's like stabbing God so you can't stab God to eat it which doesn't make sense because your teeth are sharp So I was just challenging like basic things that didn't make sense to me and they couldn't deal with that. So they decided I had to leave. Lena went to live with her father for a year, but he had some mental health issues that he was dealing with and she went to live with her grandmother after that. I asked Lena about the ramifications that leaving had on her life. I've been in therapy since I was 16. I have trouble with PTSD, so I get scared by lap noises and I have nightmares. And I think I've also 
had to like learn how to exist in the world as a person. So I had to learn everything, like simple things like how to use cutlery, um, just learn about movies and stuff. I didn't really watch any cartoons as a kid. So often people will talk about like bananas in pajamas or something and I'll be like, oh, I never really watched that. Also just like hugs. I didn't really get hugs as a kid, so I had to like learn how to hug people. Yeah. Well, I also think that like probably I don't want to have kids just because I don't know if I could like um uh, I don't know if I could like overcome like past trauma enough to be a good parent. So I asked Lena about any red flags she thought people might want to look out for with similar communities. Well, I think I'd say in any organisation, look at who has the power and what they might be getting from being involved with the group. So I think in this instance, it would be the men and they would be getting uh, like a sense of control or... There was also some kind of tithing element where you're meant to give a certain percentage of your income. So then it would be like the leaders who are getting money. Um, I'd also say some warning signs would be pulling away from friends or like people that you knew before you joined the group and not being as interested in the things you were and then also attempting to recruit everyone close to you. Um, I know my mum was like that. Uh, any friends she had that weren't Hare Krishnas should be talking to them about it all the time. Um, I think it is a kind of pyramid scheme. So. I asked Lena the question that I always ask someone who's experienced a group that they feel is cult-like. How much do they feel the leadership believed in what they were teaching? And how much do they think it was about power and manipulation? I think it's hard to tell how much the leaders believe and how much is manipulation. I think generally it's a mixture of both and probably a lot of self-delusion. I think once they're in a position of power, it's easy to just go along with it. And yeah, I, I see it like gets to their heads. Um, the sannyasis especially. I also put the three criteria that I use to define a cult for this podcast to Lena. Number one, a charismatic leader or leadership that closely controls members, particularly with regards to exercising their free will to disengage with the group and its ideology. I'd say that, yes, it's definitely dominated by a charismatic leader who would be Narayan Maharaj, or was when he was alive. But then he also like legitimizes male leadership within groups who, yeah, they do closely control the members in all the ways that I said before, basically isolating them, that type of thing. And they do discourage people from engaging with the outside world. 
I think actually it is possible for people to leave, obviously, but there is a lot of like social stigma around that and people don't generally uh, engage with people who have left. So there is the kind of pressure that you won't have all your friends that you used to have. Um, I know that when I left, there was a lot of like criticism from the community and people not wanting to talk to me. Number two who believe that they exclusively have access to the truth and the rest of the world is wrong. Yeah, uh, 100%. For sure, they definitely believe that they have access to the only way to the spiritual world and that's the truth. And if anyone else is saying it, they're just trying to trick you. And number three, who are largely secretive about the workings of their society to outsiders. I would say that there are definitely secret elements of the society that outsiders don't know about. Even just based on the, I would say, the impression that people have of Hare Krishna's is very different to what it's like because they are so isolated. Srila Bhaktivedanta Narayana Maharaja died on the 29th of December 2010 which would have been just after Lena was kicked out of her family and the garden ashram. He was 89 years old at the time of his death. Lena was out of touch with her mother and stepfather for a decade and only started getting in contact again in 2019. She wanted her mother to know about some things that had happened to her when she was younger. She was worried about her younger twin siblings living with her stepfather and she wanted them to be safe and okay. Lena had reported an incident of alleged sexual assault to the police, but had been told that there wasn't enough evidence to proceed with any charges. So she decided she had to tell her mother, after years without any contact. Her mother and stepfather broke up as a result, and her siblings live with her mum outside of the ashram now, though her mother is still a practising Hare Krishna. Lena tells me that her mother is refusing to report any of the abuse that happened on the ashram because she's worried about the impact it will have on her ex-husband. Lena has now moved to a different city and is studying, though she's taken a bit of a break to focus on her mental health. She's been dealing with chronic fatigue and depression, but has been getting some treatment. She told me that she thought it was important to speak out about her experiences, mainly because of the children who are hugely affected by this kind of upbringing. To finish off today's episode, I asked Lena if there was anything else she wanted to talk about. I guess I just wanted to talk about like how effective the, the push to like be into it was. As a kid, I was so into it. Like I believed everything they said up to the age of probably 11. So like as a nine and 10 year old, I told my mom I could like remember my past life. I remember one morning at Mangalati, which is the early morning thing, I thought I could actually see Radha and Krishna, who are the gods, like in front of my eyes and I was having a spiritual experience. I think I just had a very good imagination as a kid. But every trip to India I went to was like magical. It was, I couldn't believe I was going to the actual places from the stories I grew up with. So all the myths. There was this story about uh, one time there was a big flood and Krishna picked up a mountain with his little pinky finger and we got to go to the actual mountain and like walk around it and it was like 
yeah, it was pretty amazing. So yeah, I guess just how like it really draws you in and it seems real. It's weird to leave that and find out there's like a whole other world beyond that. You can access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written by me, Sarah Steele. Research was by Hayley Gray and music was by Joe Gould. Thanks to Corey Green of Transducer Audio for editing and a very special thanks to Lena for sharing her story with me. Information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult, or would like to support those who have been, You can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me again next month. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.